I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. You're listening to Muses and Stuff, the podcast that celebrates those who live, love, and breathe rock and roll. From the incredible groupies, girlfriends, and wives who went after what and who they wanted, to the journalists, photographers, and other behind-the-scenes characters who play such an important part in rock and roll history. We are your hosts, Shanti and Lynx. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Electrified Porcupine, bringing you the best in collectibles, movies, music, wrestling, gaming, and more. Check it out at electrifiedporcupine.com. You good to go? I'm good. I'm very much looking forward to what you got for me. Awesome. So I'm going to tell you this. Tell me. My dad's been visiting and we have been just going through the Netflix uh, music section. Mm-hmm. So we watched the Rolling Stones, the new Rolling the new Stones one? one that they have on there. It's called Crossfire Hurricane. And there's a scene in it where there's just Mick Jagger in his little underwear. <laughs> and then in the background, there's Keith Richards in his little underwear. Just oh my like goodness. kissing some beauty. Ooh. Yeah. Nice. So I like that. And then we also watched the Eagles one, and now he's watching the one on the Grateful Dead. Cool. And I, as I was uh, filling up the hot water, um, I 
was overhearing that they were talking about, um, I forget the guy's name, The Grateful Dead, but he was like, yeah, I was the heartthrob of the band. And then there was an interview with a couple of girls being like, yeah, we wanted to meet him backstage. We were in grade 10 at the time. Oh. <laughs> so I left on that note. <laughs> like, I've, got an, I've got an episode to record. But yeah, we've just oh. been cool. Yep. Well, I'm really, really, really excited to present this one. Uh, Patty Smith is just an absolute hero of mine and her uh, writing is phenomenal and just kids which is the focal point uh, that I used for this episode is one of my favorite books ever had you read it before I had I had and uh, I yeah I just love it I I really wish I could like if I could jump into any era it would definitely be like New York in the time that they were there and uh, so yeah this one's like this one's special for me and uh, I'm really excited because I think you're really going to enjoy it as well. And it's like a two for one because you're not only getting Patty's story, but you're getting Robert Maplethorpe's story as well. I don't know anything about either of them. Perfect. This what one... do kids day- say? TBH? TBH? I don't know much TBH. about either of them. So All right. I'm looking forward to learning something today. Cool. That's perfect. I definitely can teach you something then. Show me the way. So... Patty, or I should say Robert, was born on November 4th, 1946, and Patty was born just a short while later, December 30th, 1946. I'm going to focus a little more on Patty. Uh, She was born in Chicago. Uh, When she was two, her sister Linda was born. Uh, When her mom discovered she was pregnant with Patty's brother Todd, they moved to Germantown, Pennsylvania, and for a few years, they lived in a in like a temp housing space that was set up for servicemen and their kids. And it was basically just like a barracks that overlooked an abandoned field that they called the patch. And that's like where the kids played and everything. Patty was always very intelligent, very introspective. Uh, Since birth, she talks about pestering her mother with endless questions and inheriting her mother's love of literature uh, she taught Patty how to read very, very early on. And Patty, she was often bedridden with illnesses. Uh, she would, you know, consume one book after another, anything she could get her hands on, always wanting to learn more and discover new worlds. And her love of books turned into a, a desire to, you know, express her own feelings. And she began running stories and little plays that her siblings and her, like, would put on. And Cute. Yeah. Um, Patty was also highly in- intelligent or i said that sorry uh and well read but like Susie rotolo mm-hmm. um it didn't really translate into school patty was a daydreamer and her teachers obviously that's kind of looked down <laughs> on uh she spent many hours in the classroom sort of sitting in the corner with with one of those dunce caps on they're like You're actually kidding. no they oh actually my made, God. right no that's terrible isn't it Yes, that's terrible. Uh, No, we should bring back the dunce cap. (laughs) When her family was evicted from the patch, uh, they moved to New Jersey. Her mom gave birth to another girl, and Patty did her best to adjust to her new surroundings. She spent most of her time reading still, but would often run around in the woods with her dog and her siblings. And Patty was now around 11, and her mother... I guess began to try to like iron out the tomboy in her, which Patty felt as a, as like a, a betrayal of her true self. 
Uh, happily, she discovered Louisa May Alcott's Little Women. Okay, that is so crazy because from the moment that you started talking about this podcast, the words Little Women yeah. came to my mind and I have no idea why. Amazing. And then again, when you said she started making her own stories, I thought yep. Little Women. Yep. And now that you just said Little Women, I'm... I had to say that. You believe me or don't believe me, but I predicted that. Yeah. And of course, um, and I definitely felt this way when I read that book and saw the film when I was a kid. Joe is such a positive female heroine and she really related to her. She was a tomboy and a dreamer and a writer and she really looked up to her. And it also gave her the goal to like one day write a book of her own. So that's when that sort of dream uh, came about. Another big moment happened for Patty when her father took them to the Museum of Art in Philadelphia. This was the only trip they ever took as a family and the first time she was seeing these gorgeous works of art in person. When she discovered Picasso, she was stunned. Uh, Her dad, however, could see no merit in Picasso and preferred artists like Salvador Dali. And this actually led to their first serious disagreement with her father uh, as they left patty said i knew i had been transformed moved by the revelation that human beings create art and that to be an artist was to see what others could not Mm. and that's when she was like i'm an artist i need to be an artist how do you be an artist you know as patty grew into her teen years music also gained a bigger role in her life Her and her siblings would run through their chores and homework, then put on music and dance around. And Patty was now also writing poems and drawings. And uh, she finally found some teachers, thankfully, who encouraged that side of her. She won a competition to have her work displayed at at a local paint shop. And with the money, she bought more painting materials. She says, I long to enter the fraternity of artists, their hunger, their manner of dress, their process and prayers i brag i was going to be an artist mistress one day Mm. nothing seemed more romantic to my young mind i imagined myself as frida to diego both muse and maker i dreamed of meeting an artist to love and support and work with side by side (gasps) i love it right yes so we can relate absolutely we can definitely relate to that In 1966, Patty was attending a teacher's college. Her father had worried, this is awful, that Patty was not pretty enough to nab a husband. And he kind of encouraged her saying, you know, this will secure your financial, you know, security in the future. And that she did that to appease him. But it got disrupted when at 19, Patty ended up getting pregnant. Really? Yes. She knew she couldn't care for a child, and neither could the 17-year-old father. So with the help of a professor, she found a couple who were longing to adopt. She had to leave home during the pregnancy because of judgmental neighbors who were treating her family horribly. And she stayed with a surrogate family. And when she was finally due, the nurses at the hospital actually treated her just as bad. Oh, God. They waited hours before calling the doctor. Uh, They called her Dracula's daughter. They threatened to cut her hair. They were just, like, horrible human beings. Uh, Luckily, Patty did deliver a healthy baby, and she gave it to a loving family. Good. (sighs) Yeah. 
In the spring of 67, 20-year-old Patty had quit teacher's college and was working at a textile factory. She was quite alone. She was living in her, you know, literary world, still desiring to become an artist. On Memorial Day, she stood in front of the Joan of Arc statue in Philadelphia, and she vowed to make something of herself. She couldn't afford to go to art school, so she decided instead to seek out those who were in art school. She figured if she could place herself in their environment, she could learn through them. Very cool. Yeah. On July 3rd, she went to the bus station to buy herself a one-way ticket to New York. When she got there, she found that the fare had doubled and she did not have enough money. So she went to a payphone to call her sister because she didn't know what else to do. And there in the payphone was a lost purse. And that purse had $32 in it, no ID, nothing. Patty was like... Couldn't have returned it if she tried. Yeah, exactly. She took the money, but she did hand the purse to the counter. Um, this unknown benefactor set Patty on her way. Fantastic. Yeah. When Patty arrived, uh, she went to her friend's house, but th- she found that they had moved. There was a young man who lived there now, and sh- he kind of showed her the where they'd moved. He took her there, but they never showed up, and she had no place to go. And she ended up sleeping in Central Park for the first little while. She says, I sensed no danger in the city, and I never encountered any. I had nothing to offer a thief and didn't fear men on the prowl. I wasn't of interest to anyone, and that worked in my favor for the first few weeks when I bummed around, free to explore by day, sleeping where I could at night. I sought doorwells, subway cars, even a graveyard, startled to awake beneath the city sky or being shaken awake by a strange hand. So Patty spent a very hungry month or so searching for jobs, and she finally found one. She was hired at Brentano's bookstore as a cashier. Soon after starting, the boy who she had met that first day that was now living at her friend's house walked in. He uh, it was admiring this piece of jewelry that they were selling there. That was actually Patty's favorite necklace. And before he purchased it, and before he left, Patty blurted, "Don't give it to any girl but me." Mm-hmm. And he, she was like embarrassed after she said it, but he was just like, "I won't." So after her first week on the job, Patty was looking forward to payday, but uh, was super defeated upon learning that. The first first week's pay was withheld for some reason. I'm not sure why that is, but apparently it was. Um, So she was, like, starving. Uh, A man came in and offered to take her for dinner, and she accepted. But after, she really started to worry, like, what is this man expecting from me for this dinner? She was sitting with him in Thompson Square Park, and just as he began suggesting, like, why don't we go to my place, Patty noticed that young man who bought the necklace was approaching them. So she ran up to him, and she was like, please help me uh, pretend you're my boyfriend. Like, well, is that okay? And he was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So they walked over to the man Patty had been with, and Patty said, this is my boyfriend. He's been looking for me, and he's really mad. Uh, He wants me to come home now. And then Patty yelled, run! (laughs) And then they both just took off. (laughs) So this time they finally introduced themselves, uh, and Patty and Robert Maplethorpe spent the rest of the night wandering around the East Village, getting to know one another, at 2 a.m., they both admitted to each other that they 
they both had no place to go. Oh, my God. (laughs) So Robert's old roommate happened to be away and he knew where he kept the key. So they ended up going there. Robert was keeping his art there and he showed Patty his work. One piece really stood out to Patty and Robert explained it was uh, a drawing that was symbolic of his commitment to art. But the thing that really stuck out most was the date he'd created it. It was on Memorial Day, the same day Patty made that vow in front of the Joan of Arc statue. So he gave her the drawing and she says, I understood in that small place of time, we had mutually surrendered our loneliness and replaced it with trust. Wordlessly, we absorbed the thoughts of one another and just as Dom broke, fell asleep in each other's arms. When we woke, he greeted me with his crooked smile and I knew he was my knight. So beautiful, huh? Yeah, I'm into this. From that moment on, they were Robert and Patty. They were a duo. So a little bit more about Robert. I told you he was born on November 4th, 1946. He was raised in Floral Park, Long Island. He was the third of six kids. And like Patty, very drawn to art from very early on. Uh, He would color like most kids, but always with imaginative colors. Like the sky would never be blue. It would be purple or red or just, you know, crazy. And he was uh, sketching of some of his own. He was also a jewelry maker, and he apparently loved decorating brooches and making, you know, necklaces for his mother, which he was Aww. very much a mama's boy, and his brothers really made fun of him for it. <laughs> his family was very strict and very Catholic. Robert was also an altar boy. So that meant, you know, as he grew older Robert found himself you know having to suppress some of his crazier artistic feelings and after high school he went to the Pratt Institute for Art in Brooklyn and he majored at first in graphic arts but then I believe he went back um, shortly after him and Patty got together and uh, yeah so that brings us you know to present day with him and Patty Uh, Rob's friends were sweet enough to let them stay at that house for the next couple weeks. During this time, Patty told Rob everything about her life and him, you know, by her side, she was able to kind of deal with some of the depression she was experiencing after the childbirth and, you know, having to give her baby up for adoption and all of that. She had to have a C-section um, thanks to, I believe, the nurses who waited forever to call the doctor when she was uh, uh, ready to deliver. Ugh. Yeah. There's parts of the story that I'm loving and there's parts of the story <laughs> that I'm hating already. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, she had these like fresh scars on her abdomen and she says he really helped her get over the deep self-consciousness that she, you know, naturally was experiencing with that as well. After saving for a few weeks, they found a place in Brooklyn they got a deal to only pay the first month's rent due to its aggressively seedy condition. <laughs> there was blood on the walls, syringes in the oven. They had to do like a major paint and clean. Uh, but they had the whole second floor to themselves. It was at 160 Hall Street and they paid $80 a month. I looked this up. You can find it online. It's been redone and now it's 8000 a month. <gasps> Yeah. Oh, my God. Insane. I wonder who lives there. I wonder. So the first night in their new home, Robert gave Patty the necklace that he'd bought. 
And over the years, they would actually pass it back and forth based on, like, who needed it most. It was, like, they're, like, talisman, you know? They're what? They're, like, talisman. What does that mean? It's, like, um, a special thing that brings you luck type of thing. Oh, that's so nice. My friend Corey and I have a shirt like that that we send back and forth in the mail to one another. That's beautiful. I love that. So... They combine their belongings and they turn their home into a beautiful space of creation. And while money was very tight, they were very happy. They had each other and all the tools that they needed to work on their crafts. And they shared their knowledge of other artists and poets and began to inspire each other. On evenings, they would roam the streets, taking in all the historic sites where their music and literary icons used to roam. But they could never actually afford to go in. They would just sort of wander around and when they had enough money to go check out an art museum they would take turns because they could only afford one ticket so one would go in and report back to the other (laughs) everything that they saw um after robert would say one day we'll go in together and the work will be ours so robert and patty also had a game of sorts which they called one day, two day, and the premise was that one always had to remain vigilant while the other was in need. For instance, if Robert took a drug, Patty had to be like present and sober to make sure he was okay. If one of them was depressed, the other would be there by their side, stay up all night if necessary to make sure, you know, they were never, you know, upset or if one got sick the other had to be healthy it was really important to them that they would never be self-indulgent on like the same day interesting yeah um they always they always could rely on one another so that winter uh patty took robert home to meet her parents to calm his nerves he actually took acid okay uh he had also been on acid the night that they ran off together and officially met but she didn't find out until much later lsd on robert kind of looked normal if a little happy i Mm. guess um interestingly enough patty was never a, a drug taker like i believe marijuana was the most she ever did and she didn't do that until like many years later um robert do you think that maybe people would just assume that because she was very thin oh absolutely and just kind of like hair kind of messy absolutely and um later she would be in plays and stuff and play like speed junkies and okay a lot of people just thought that was that was her she, oh i didn't know that yeah. if you would have asked me do you think that patty smith was into drugs i might have said yes yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's okay. why it's very interesting yeah uh robert took a liking to patty's mom's purple cow candy dish that she had there i guess maybe the lsd he like could not stop staring at it and his mom ended up giving it to him uh, much to his delight and i mentioned this because years later um that dish was found displayed among his valuable italian vases and like his art collection so it really meant something to him so this first new year's eve together they decided to make vows Robert decided to apply for a student loan and return to Pratt, and Patty made a silent promise to help Robert achieve his goals by providing for them financially while he focused on his art. Patty started a new job at the historic Scribner's bookstore on Fifth Avenue, and Patty adored it. She only made 65 a week, though, so money was always tight still. 
She says, I had no regrets taking the job as breadwinner. My temperament was sturdier and I could create at night. I was proud to provide a situation allowing him to do his work without compromise. Nice. Yeah. Um, I think this ended up giving Robert even more of a drive to create as well because, uh, you know, he wanted to be able to show Patty, like, look, it's, this is my work and, you know, I'm not taking this for granted. So it really pushed him. So while they inspired each other and created side by side, they both had their distinct outlets. Robert was more visual with his drawings and he would make like little constructions and collages and Patty like a little more poetic, literature based, but she did draw as well. Uh, they also had different ideals of an artist's life. While they were poor and struggling, that was sort of Patty's romanticized view of life. Well, Robert always in, strived to be more like in a Warhol place, like a higher society. And that's sort of like where he had his sights set. But Patty was just happy the way <laughs> it was. Um, even so, Patty says, one cannot imagine the mutual happiness we felt when we sat and drew together. We would get lost for hours. His ability to concentrate for long periods infected me, and I learned by his example, working side by side. So Robert's early work was very much inspired by his foray into like LSD and his youth in the Catholic Church. And as he continued to make constructions, Patty kind of urged him, you know, maybe you should be taking your own photos instead of using other people's photos for collages. But he would always find a reason to like not do that you know i don't have the patience for developing like film is expensive so i mean valid valid yes yes. yeah in 1968 robert managed to get patty a ticket to see the doors which Hmm. she loved uh well at the show she says i remember this feeling much more clearly than the concert i felt watching jim morrison that i could do that I can't say why I thought this. I had nothing in my experience to make me think that it would ever be possible, yet I harbored that conceit. So she's, she's, there's a feeling in her, but she's, she doesn't know exactly what that, that's about yet. Cool. Um, the time finally came for Patty to meet Robert's family. Because his family was so Catholic, Robert really struggled with how to break it to them that they were kind of living out of wedlock, you know? In sin. Yes. So his solution was to just tell them that they were married. So Patty thought it was kind of silly until she met them. His family was so different from hers, and immediately she could feel the coldness in his family. At dinner... um, his dad like barely looked at Patty and said nothing except said nothing to Robert except you should cut your hair you look like a girl so that's you know his that's what he was getting from his father but his mother was a little warmer and they they did have a very close relationship and uh his mom slipped Robert some money and took Patty into her room and gave her a gold wing to wear for the for a wedding band um Patty told her they hadn't bought rings because they couldn't afford them uh, when they were leaving, uh, her his m- m- mom hugged them, and his dad said, I don't believe they're married at all. <gasps> no. So over time, Robert drew darker and a little more silent, and Patty says he never ceased to be affectionate, but he seemed troubled by something. And he was restless in his work, and something else was hanging over him, yet he just couldn't yet communicate it. His dad's a dick. That is true. 
Um, he couldn't finish his projects. His agitation was mounting, and Patty was also experiencing a restlessness that stemmed from their home situation and uh, began looking elsewhere to her other friends, you know, making other friends for comfort and communication. And um, I guess it's natural, you know, you go through phases. Robert and Patty's physical relationship was like fading a little bit, and it ended up that Patty actually had an affair. And she ended up moving in with a girlfriend. So Robert was hurt by the decision, but he still helped her move. And Patty was still seeing the man that she was having an affair with. But Robert and her maintained their closeness. And he was always begging her to come back. Uh, One day he kind of gave her an ultimatum. He was like, come home or I'm moving to San Francisco. Uh, He did ask her to come with him as well. And when Patty said no, he said if you don't come, I will turn homosexual. So, this, okay. yes. This was the first time Robert had voiced any sort of hint that that side might be in him. And now that I'm thinking after you did show me some of his art. Yes. So, okay. Patty really don't know what to make of that. She does say she regrets the way she acted in that moment, though. It was a lot to take in, I guess. Robert did leave. He went to San Francisco. Uh, While he was there, he continued to write to Patty. He was saying, you know, I'm discovering myself. And he shared with her all the experiences he was having with men. I guess San Francisco is the place to go, too. Yeah, right? Uh, But he always still assured her that, like, I love you. So Patty was dealing with feelings of having, like, failed Robert in her limited experience with all of this. it was making her feel like, you know, maybe this is my fault. So, hmm. yeah. Also, you know, she did not see it coming. So it was like, well, how, how did this happen? Soon Robert did come back to New York, though, and he had met his first boyfriend, which his name was Terry. Mm. So though being with them together, Patty, or, or through being with them, Patty sort of came to see homosexuality homosexuality as a natural way of being it was like hot nah. like <laughs> and sexy <laughs> she was I'm always aroused. accepting of people before that but you know she was for the first time like truly witnessing it yeah and uh patty ended up being you know recently single so this was also a lot of emotion for her to deal with and she kind of had a little more bouts of depression which robert did everything he could to support her through and both wanted to grow as people, but neither really wanted to let go of one another. Was Robert still into women, like bisexual, or did he end up... He was still into Patty. Still, okay, so... Yeah. yeah. So, Oof. Patty thought, you know, Robert went away, maybe I should go away for a bit. You know, maybe I should explore myself. So, with her sister, she planned a trip to Paris. Her and Robert made a promise to each other that they would both work hard while she was away, she would write him poems and he would draw for her. So her time in Paris was filled with, you know, artistic adventures and hard work. And Brian Jones passed away while she was there. And for the first time, her love of rock and roll sort of entered her poetry because she wrote like an ode to him, I guess. Um, Robert was constantly writing her and sharing his side of, you know, their journey. And this was when Robert sort of began exploring the underground sexual world let's put it that way um if you look at his imagery you can see 
there's like S&M and things like that in, in it. And I think he also saw the film Midnight Cowboy around this time and that greatly affected him. Um, that's actually my dad's favorite film as well. So I've never seen it. Oh, it's so good. But it's very, very emotional. Okay. Yeah. But what you year need did to it come out? It. In the 70s? 69. 69. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. Another yeah. another great movie recommendation oh, yeah. by Lynx. It's so good. It's so good. I have a poster of it on, at my house. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, you've probably seen it. Well, you must have. Uh, when Patty returned to New York, she was shocked by the state that she'd found Robert in. Uh, he had a high fever. He was suffering from trench mouth, which is as awful as it sounds. It's like ulcers on your gums and just... Oh, it looks so painful. And he lost a lot of weight. Uh, but the work he had produced while she was away like really blew her, her away. They moved in together again at the Hotel Allerton, which was a very cheap, disgusting hotel filled with like junkies and bugs. And uh, they Speaking beca- of junkies, look who just walked, came out from behind my bed. <laughs> the cat. You're a junkie, and he wants to eat some food now, so... He's like, where's the catnip? Okay, I'll let him out. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Okay. So, um, yeah, they went to the Hotel Allerton, and so began what Patty calls the lowest point in their life together. Robert's health was getting worse. His gums were abscessed. He was kind of delirious with fever. Uh, they had no money to pay their bill. So Patty actually carried Robert down the fire escape. Oh and like God. they like got out of there. So they decided, let's check out the, the Chelsea Hotel. Um, on their way there, they vowed that they would never leave each other again until they both knew that they were ready to stand on their own. So the Chelsea is a fantastic place. It was really known for giving artists a break. Uh, Plenty of artists who didn't have money would pay their rent through art. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So when they arrived, Patty offered the manager some of their artwork, and she told them also that she'd be getting an advance from her employer shortly. And uh, one or both of those was good enough for him to take a chance on them. So rent at the Chelsea was 55 a week, and they were given room 107, which was the smallest room in the hotel. Um, there, I showed you a little piece of a I documentary, that. right? Uh, if you go on YouTube, just type in, you know, Chelsea Hotel, Patty Smith, you can find uh, this little documentary that was made there about different artists that were there, and you can kind of take a little tour of their room and their art, and you can see the way that they were living then. Um, but at the moment, Robert was still unhealthy, you know, trench mouth. He also had, uh, impacted wisdom teeth. He was malnourished and he ended up having gonorrhea as well. So they both had to get shots and register that they had a communicable disease. Uh, Patty went back to Scribner's and they kindly gave her, her job back and in advance. So Patty made 70 a week there. So... Uh, the rest went to food and transport and any extra to like music or art supplies and stuff and food, of course. Did I say that? Uh, Robert had a slow convalescence, but began to mend until he too was soon able to work. Uh, they made a point to always pay the rent on time as they were on a wait list for a bigger room. And eventually they got room 204, which was a nice a bigger space, not huge, but um, 
Patty says, I felt as always a rising pleasure when he used to make, when he used to reference me in his work as if through him, I would be remembered. So Robert again was making collages and their space was very much filled with their art. And um, Patty was again on him to take his own photos, but again, he was still making excuses. And I have nothing to add to this because I'm just sitting here enraptured. It's magical, isn't it? Keep talking. All right. So uh, there's a famous bar next door to the Chelsea. Uh, the El Coyote, and that's where all the Chelsea greats like Dylan Thomas and Terry Southern and Eugene O'Neill and so many others used to drink at. And that was like now their bar. So one night, Patty just mentioned she looked around and scattered around the room was like Janis Joplin and her band and Grace Slick and Jefferson Airplane and Country Joe and Jimi Hendrix. And Patty said, I felt an inexplicable sense of kinship with these people, though I had no way to interpret my feeling of presence. I could never have predicted what I would one day or that I would one day walk in their path. At that moment, I was still a gangly 22-year-old book clerk struggling simultaneously with several unfinished poems. So by their second anniversary, they were back on track they went to Coney Island to celebrate, and that's the day they took one of their most iconic photo- photos together, and I showed you that photo. Mm-hmm. Um, Robert's wearing this hat that Patty got him as a celebration, and they just look amazing together. Like They look like artists. You know? I think um, there's probably more than one book cover, but that is one of the book is covers that, for the yeah, book. Yeah, we'll definitely. Yeah. That's definitely getting posted. Oh, for sure. Might even be like the cover photo. Pro- probably. <laughs> probably. <laughs> So Robert was looking forward and he really wanted to break into the, you know, Warhol scene and maybe not, you know, be one of Warhol's crew members. And but he, you know, he wanted that world to be his world as well. And so that kind of led them to places like Brownies and Max's Kansas City. And they did go to the factory. Uh, Max's was the coolest place to hang out at night. And we've definitely mentioned that more than once, you know, the plenty of people bb and cynthia and so many other of our muses were hanging out there um it took a while the back room was like the cool place where like all the real uh rock stars were and it took a while for them to get you know invited back but they they were eventually accepted and uh patty says you know i was accepted but i never really fit in like robert fit in you know both Robert and Patty would soon have an image change as well. Robert sort of shed his angelic curls for a more rockabilly style, and Patty one day cut her hair in her iconic, like Keith Richards style, which suddenly changed her social status like immediately. Everyone was like, okay, "Oh my god!" Yeah, I was kind of picturing her hair like that this whole time. Yeah, but no, she what had it, was it like, like long? long hippie, long hippie. Oh, I yeah. bet, I bet that yeah, would right? yeah because then that takes her up to this like androgynous exactly, kind of... and that's what that's when like she I think first heard that term as well. People were like, you know, what are you? What's going on with you? Cool. Who are you? Very cool. Yeah. So things were going well, and they needed more space to create. And for a hundred dollars a month, they rented this big space that was close to the Chelsea they were doing their own separate work and also making jewelry together at this time they didn't know how to make the extra money but were determined you know we need this space 
So Patty actually had a knack for finding like mint condition books and first editions and she would sell them and that definitely helped them a lot. And as the 60s sort of ended and the 70s began, Robert said to her, this is our decade. And of course, that did not mean it was smooth sailing from then on. Robert constantly worried about money and he would really get knocked down when his work was continually dismissed by the bigger galleries. In order to mourn earn more money and I assume inspired by his favorite film Midnight Cowboy Robert began hustling and um, Patty did not like that she was you know worried about him and but Robert was determined and that was a world that interested him how does one hustle well it's like a prostitute oh a sex worker oh I thought it just meant like hustling was just like so, like pickpocketing like no, 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 no. he was going out and you know propositioning men for money okay yes that also of course must have been of interest to him because he was still you know trying to figure out what his sexuality was and things like that so around this time, the poet Gregory Corso took Patty to her first poets collective at the St. Mark's Poetry Project. He also encouraged her and gave her poets to read and a mini mentor, I would say. Uh, Patty was honing her skills. Later, you know, a few years from now, um, Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs would also sort of be teachers and mentors for her. One night at the El Quixote, she met Dylan's right-hand man Bobby Newarth Mm -hmm. this was a big deal for her because Bob Dylan of course was a major major influence for Patty so being even you know this connected was pretty awesome Bobby took a liking to her and while Patty tried to sort of act cool and I'm I'm intimidated she did have her notebook with her and Bobby looked through it and asked you know have you ever written songs have you ever thought about writing songs And he said to her, next time I see you, I want a song from you. Nice. Yeah. So that line sort of sparked Patty to do that. And uh, when she told Robert, he said, maybe he'll be the one to get you to sing. But always remember who wanted you to sing first. Because he was continually trying to encourage her like she was trying to encourage him to take photos and things like that. Um. Patty at the time was though like I don't I don't want to sing I want to write and Robert was like uh you could do both (laughs) so they couldn't manage rent at the Chelsea anymore and have the studio but they got offered a bigger space for less money just to be at the studio alone so they ended up moving there full time Patty was really heartbroken to leave the Chelsea but it was more practical Uh, But she worried everything would change. You know, she said, what will happen to us? And Robert said, there will always be us. So Patty says that leaving the Chelsea was the first and only time I felt I had sacrificed something of myself for Robert. It was Mm. a big, it was a big move for her, even though the Chelsea was still down the street. Robert and a friend of theirs named David had been secretly having an affair for a while Patty learned about this through, I don't know if you want to call them a kind or unkind friend who blabbed it to her one day. She doesn't really understand the intention that friend had by telling her that. But she felt, if Robert isn't ready to admit it to me, I'm not going to tell him I know. 
of course, one day this all came to a boiling point and Robert found out that Patty knew and he was kind of hurt that she had never said anything and she was hurt that he was, you know, hiding it. And Patty says, I think having to define his impulses and confine his identity in terms of sexuality was foreign to him. His drives towards men were consuming but I never felt loved any less. It wasn't easy for him to sever our physical ties. I knew that. We kept our vow. Neither would leave the other. I never saw him through the lens of his sexuality. My picture of him remained intact. He was the artist of my life. So while, you know, it did sting, they cared about each other and she understood. And Wow. Yeah. So it takes a really intelligent person to yeah uh, come to that so yeah. young and especially just and maintain in that, that time. love yeah and um, that's really cool and yeah they were still living together and so Robert sort of now sort of almost I guess officially dating David and Patty sort of began expanding her horizons too thanks to Bobby Newworth. Uh, he began taking her out to shows and studio jam sessions. She mentioned some super cool things, uh, you know, seeing CSNY and hanging out with the band while they recorded Stage Fright. And Todd Rundgren was the engineer there, and she became good friends with Todd. Oh, to old Toddy yeah. boy. Bobby also introduced her to Janis Joplin, and um, Bobby introduced Patty to Janis as the poet. And then from then on, anytime Janis saw her, that's how she referred to Cute. Patty. Yeah. Um, she was also there to witness Chris Christopherson and Janice in Janice's uh, room at the Chelsea sing um, me and Bobby McGee together. And so she was, you know, witnessing these amazing moments. And she also um, she wasn't like good friends, but she was friendly with Jimi Hendrix because he was also always around. And she met playwright Tony and Gracia. And he asked her if she would take a role in his new play, which was called Island, and she accepted that. Robert was so happy to see Patty exploring her talents that he showed up every day to watch rehearsals, not just the show, but the rehearsals, and he would cheer her on. And Patty enjoyed doing the play, but she discovered acting was not, you know, that's not my passion. It's, It's fun, and she also learned... I have no stage fright and I love being on stage. So that was, you know, it was still a positive experience. So since she was hanging out with Bobby um, and she wanted to make good on his request for a song, she bought her first guitar. She wrote um, a poem called Fire of Unknown Origin and she sort of turned that into her first song. Of course, Robert was her first audience, and he was ecstatic, and apparently Janice was her second audience. Cause, uh, one night, she also sang so- Janice a song that she'd wrote, written for, for her. Um, I didn't know that the two of them had such history. Yeah. Robert, uh, just imagine living at the Chelsea then. Like, yeah. Ugh, that's my dream, my absolute dream. So Robert was really pushing Patty to get her work out there now. Um, do you know who Gerard Malanga is? No. He was one of Warhol's right-hand men. Like, I think he, he started as an assistant, but he ended up doing, like, a lot of work. And 
he was very much high high up there in the factory world in the warhol factory so gerard was also a poet and uh he told robert about an open mic night that um jim carroll was moderating and jim carroll of is the basketball diaries that's oh yeah okay so um robert made patty promise to perform at this open mic and she agreed to give it a try and it was there that patty um met jim and she she immediately liked him and one day she she saw jim hanging outside the chelsea because he also lived there (laughs) and um she asked you know do you want to hang out and before you knew it they were sort of seeing each other uh, she had a lot of fun adventures with him, and she did want to be his, like, true girlfriend, but she wrote, I would never serve as the source of his inspiration, though in attempting to articulate the drama of my feelings, I became more prolific and, a, I believe, a better writer. Okay, cool. Yeah. And Robert really liked and really related to Jim, so he was very happy that Patty was also, you know, dating others and exploring, you know, her world so young yeah absolutely yeah at the time jim was still a heroin addict and like robert he was a hustler so jim and robert really bonded and i think jim in a way helped robert who was you know still struggling with his sexuality um robert once asked jim like you're a hustler you know you're but you say you're not gay like how do you know how do you know you're not gay and jim was like because I always ask for money, Mm. (laughs) you know, sort of pointing out hustling is a job. It's a means to an end. It's never about pleasure for me. So, you know, I think I, I, this uh, it's obvious Robert is working out his, his feelings, you know, um, as a junkie hustler with no real fixed address Jim wasn't exactly an ideal boyfriend by any means and while Patty did have those feelings she knew it wasn't you know the right time or place and she says I knew he didn't love me but I adored him anyway eventually he just drifted away leaving me a long lock of his red gold hair so Patty and Todd Rundgren I mentioned they became good friends. And one night he invited her out. Oh, she also mentions that he actually like took her to meet his family. Yeah. Yeah. But this night he took her out to see a band called Holy Model Rounders. The drummer was this beautiful man. And Patty was like very much drawn to this guy. So after the show, they were backstage. The man introduced himself as Slim Shadow. So Patty had recently been getting a little bit of extra work writing. She started writing for magazines like Crawdaddy and Circus and even Rolling Stone. So she'd asked him, I, I think I think it was like a real pickup line. She was like, hey, like, do you want to be interviewed? Mm. <laughs> and We've never used that before. <laughs> <laughs> so Slim agreed and they met shortly after and she found Slim to be this great storyteller and Patty really loved hanging out with him and she was happy that he sort of began appearing on her doorstep you know randomly and one day she bumped into him uh she Patty was malnourished and anemic she'd just been told by a doctor that she needed to eat a lot of more meat but she couldn't afford it so one day she actually stole two steaks and put them in her pockets and then she met Slim outside and Slim was like let's go for a walk and so they were like chatting for a while and then finally Patty was like 
I have to tell you, like, I have to, I, these stakes um, are going to get back, go bad. Oh my God. And he like, didn't believe her, but then he like put his hand in her pocket and it was there and he just laughed and he was like, all right, let's, let's eat. Stick <laughs> in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after that night, Slim must have been concerned about Patty's health and if she was eating enough and if she was stealing steak, you know. <laughs> yeah. So he'd asked her one day, like, have you ever tried the lobster at Max's? And she was like, I've never eaten at Max's. And he was like, what? That's insane. So uh, he insisted, like, let's go. You have to try their lobster. So they went to Max's and walked into the back room and it was filled with all the regulars. And uh, but they sat alone. And Patty noticed everyone was, you know, staring. And uh, she realized, wow, I've never been here without Robert. And here I am with this gorgeous fella. And, you know, of course, no doubt everyone back there was attracted to him. And um, Jackie Curtis, who is one of the Warhol um, queens, and um, she sort of was like wildly motioning to Patty. And so she followed... Patty followed her into the bathroom with a lobster claw because she thought Jackie wanted some food. But Patty did not want, or Jackie did not want food. Jackie was just really excited and she said, Oh my God, like, what are you doing with Sam Shepard? And Patty was like, uh, This is Slim. He's a, he's a drummer. <laughs> and Jackie was like, uh, No, that's Sam Shepard, the biggest off Broadway playwright. And who we now know as an actor as well. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> so he just lied to her and, like, thought it was amusing that she didn't know who he yeah, was? I guess so, yeah. Oh, that's funny. So Patty and Sam, she went back. She was like, is your name Sam? And he admitted it was. And they had a laugh and they started really bonding and... They were very similar. She really felt she could be herself around him. And so they began, you know, dating. And this time, Robert and Sam, they did not really warm up to one another. Uh, One of the main reasons is because Sam at the time had a wife and like a very small baby. Okay. So, of course, he was just a little worried for Patty. And Patty realizes, you know, he just had her best interests at heart. Um, Patty explains, perhaps it was the carelessness of youth, but I was not completely cognizant of how our irresponsible ways could affect others. I met his wife, Olan, a young, gifted actress. I never expected him to leave her, and we fell into an unspoken rhythm of coexistence. Sam t- had taken a room at the Chelsea, but since he had this other family, he was very back and forth and so patty sort of got to like live there when sam was away so she still got her you know chelsea back and that's pretty sweet yeah um and robert was still with david so you know they were both sort of exploring their own relationships now so robert was really getting sick of the constant rejection of his work from the big galleries and instead of you know, internalizing that, he finally was like, I'm going to put my own show on. I'm going to put it on at the Chelsea. And he did just that. And it was a great success. And he sold a lot of his work to, you know, some, some bigger names. And um, I wonder how much some of his pieces go for now. Oh, so much. I bet so much. Yeah. Um, He was 
so he was like finally beginning to get credit in the art world people were seeing him as you know as an important artist to to you know keep looking at he was also now beginning to penetrate that higher society which was always his main goal penetrate <laughs> exactly <laughs> Uh, so Patty was very happy and very proud of him. Um, Patty was getting frustrated with her side of the work because she found poetry at this time was just not an physical enough for her. You know, she tasted the stage and she 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 wanted more. And Robert knew she, what she needed was like to get out there and perform it. So he actually went back to Gerard Mwanga and Gerard was doing his own reading at St. Mark's church. He had this big performance and Robert asked, can Patty open for you? And he said, yes. So he got Patty like her first kind of big gig. Sam suggested to Patty that she add music to her performance. So this is when Patty and Lenny Kay uh, got together. Lenny Kay is a guitarist um, and has been with, with her band since the get-go so interesting that it was so many people around her yeah. that were putting things together for her yeah yeah it's oh, yeah. nice they were all you know helping out each other and it, was, it sounds like a great community yeah and she had just recently met or heard of lenny because he also was a writer and he'd done some pieces for like music magazines and compilations and stuff so she admired his work and she asked him if he would join and he said yes and on february 10th 1971 they opened in front of an audience filled with the warhol crowd and a bunch of the chelsea regulars came out todd rundgren even brought miss christine from the gto yay miss christine yeah. So it went amazingly. Uh, Patty says that she was so caught up in it, though, that she acted like a big ass and she forgot to thank Gerard and Robert after. And uh, she says Robert was hurt but unable to conceal his pride in her. He was just so happy. Mm -hmm. um, people had obviously been impressed. Patty got bombarded with offers after that. Cream Magazine agreed to publish a suite of her poems. She got offers for readings in London and Philadelphia, and she got a contract for a small publishing or from a small publishing company, and they would soon publish her, um, a small book of her poems. Um, there were also rumblings of a record contract. Um, at first, Patty was really excited, but then she was extremely embarrassed. She says, it came, I felt, too easy. Nothing had come to Robert so easily or for the poets I embraced. I decided to back off. Yeah. This sounds weirdly familiar. No? Just I feel like it's a story that Yeah. I feel like a lot before. of people, once they get that success, feel like, do I deserve it? Is this, is like, how did this happen, you know? Um, and yeah, she turned it down. She just did not feel it was the right time. Um, interestingly, Patty had also given away her guitar to her sister. Thankfully, though, Sam found out and he immediately took her to buy another. And that became her most treasured instrument that she used to write most of her songs. And she still uses. I remember why it sounds familiar. Because there's an episode of Nashville. You ever watch that show, Nashville? No. Where Scarlett... Um, she gets a record deal. And she's like, "Oh, Gunner, I feel so bad because, or no, maybe it's Avery. He was trying so hard, and it just came to me so easily. And I don't want to make him feel bad for like <laughs> maybe, uh, failing. Maybe the writers read just kids. Yep. 
So one night, her and Sam were hanging out at the Chelsea, and Sam turned to her and he said, let's write a play. Cool. Yeah. Just like that, their play Cowboy Mouth, Cowboy Mouth came into existence. Um, so. Is it the combination between the Midnight Cowboy movie and the gross mouth that Robert had? Is that where the <laughs> inspiration for the name of that came from? I'm not sure. She doesn't say. What the hell mouth? What was his Cowboy mouth. I don't know. Trench mouth? Trench mouth and Midnight Cowboy. Mix it together. You got cowboy mouth. You got it. This play was about two aspiring rock stars who live in sin together, even though one has a wife and child. Sound familiar? It does. <laughs> so they actually performed it together at the American Place Theater, but Sam had found it incredibly stressful to expose so much of himself on stage, and it clearly must have brought out feelings of guilt because Patty says, on the third night, Sam disappeared. We closed the play, and Sam returned to his own world, his family, and his responsibilities. Hmm. Yeah. Sam left New York to move to Nova Scotia shortly after this, but before he left, he gave Patty an envelope filled with some money so that she could take care of herself and eat. And he also wrote her a note that said, you know, the dreams you had for me weren't my dreams. Maybe those dreams were meant for you. Meaning, you know, the rock and roll thing. Peace. I'm moving to Halifax. Well, Patty and Sam actually remained great, great friends until his passing last year. And if you look it up online, she wrote this beautiful tribute to him uh, for the New Yorker when he passed away. Um, they, yeah, they they had a great relationship after that, a great friendship. So, yeah, Sam Shepard's amazing too. He's a great artist. So Patty, uh, to you know, I guess get over all of this, did a little bit of traveling after she went to Mexico, LA. Uh, when she came home, she found Robert kind of in a bad trip. Uh, as with his sexuality, Robert was always trying to figure out his like dual nature of, I guess, in simplistic terms, like his good and evil side. Um, if you look at Robert's work, you will like, very much see like the light and dark, you know, reflected in it. And I'm guessing this this side of him was probably a result of the strict Catholic upbringing. You know, right, wrong, good, bad, evil, whatever. Yeah. Um, Obviously, I don't have enough time to like fully get into that, but you know, check out his work. It's it's all there. It's amazing, and I just wanted to mention, you know, what Robert was going through at this time, and he was really using his work to like process all of those feelings that he was having, and he also finally, finally began taking his own photos when finances allowed, and was really now gravitating toward that form of expression. So while Patty was still amused to him and his first model, he was also finding inspiration in his boyfriend, David. You know, look those photos up. They're great. David was also responsible for connecting Robert with the curator of photography at the Met. Uh, His name was John McKendry, and he was, you know, in that high society Robert wanted so bad to be a part of. And doors were really opening to him. John got him a proper camera took him to Paris so his world was opening you know not just in New York but internationally as well John and Robert had a complicated relationship though because John you know kind of fell in love with Robert but Robert yeah Robert had no interest in him romantically so that I believe caused like some issues there Um, Also, very soon, David would be out of the picture as Robert was about to meet a man through David named Sam Wagstaff. And Sam was 25 years older than Robert. He 
became a mentor. He was rich. He was very much in the art world. He became a mentor, a lover. And uh, Sam and Robert would be together for the next 15 years. Wow. So, yeah, like his most important relationship was just about to happen. Besides the one he had with Patty. Exactly. His most important, like, romantic. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. Um, Patty got published again. I believe she had four books published between 72 and 73 of, like, small collections of her poems. One of them I wanted to mention is called Seventh Heaven, and it's centered around women she was fascinated or admired. Um, and in those ones included poems about people like Edie Sedgwick, uh, Marion Faithful, Anita Pallenberg. Cool. Yeah. So, yeah. And now she kind of began toying with the idea of making music again. And she was introduced to Alan Lanier um, with the intent of making music. But they were soon making love. Making love. Yes. Making um, music, making love. After they began dating, um, they decided to keep business and pleasure separate. But that was fine because Alan was about to join Blue Oyster Cult. So he had his own thing. Interestingly, Patty wrote the lyrics to a number of Blue Oyster Cult songs. What? Yeah. Um, including Fire of Unknown Origin, which was that first song that she'd written uh, for Bobby. I'm not going to say cool again because that's yeah. the only thing I've been able to say this whole time. I know. So She's like the coolest chick ever. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> nope. You said it. No, I didn't. <laughs> um, Robert and Alan did really like each other, and Alan kind of moved in with them for a while until Robert went to live with um, Wagstaff, Sam Wagstaff. And when that happened, Alan and Patty moved into their own new place within walking distance of Robert and Sam's place. They were always remained close. Alan also had to promise Robert that he would take care of Patty, you know, and before they moved and financially she would be secure. Uh, he really wanted to make sure that, he, like, they upheld their vow of never leaving each other when they were still in need. So um, just a fun side note, since it's one of my favorite places in New York, I want to mention that Patty for a short time uh, around now was working at The Strand, which is my favorite bookstore ever. Um, she did that for pocket money. Uh, Alan covered their rent and uphold it, upheld his promise to Robert. Um, it would be Patty's last conventional job as well. So in early 73, Robert had his first solo show of just his Polaroids. Patty began doing random poetry readings at bars and even opened for some New York Dolls gigs to crowds that like weren't expecting like a poetry reading before a glam punk rock rock and roll show you know what i think that is what? i think that's neat <laughs> not cool but i think it's neat all right so her friend jane friedman was really determined to help patty get her work to a wider audience and i believe she was the one who set up those um first gigs and she also encouraged patty to officially team up with lenny k and they did just that, and they began doing poetry meets rock and roll things for a few gigs, and soon they had extended gigs at Max's, and she mentions, you know, Ginsberg and Todd Rundgren and Danny Fields and B.B. Buell being there, and um, this is also when they ended up getting Richard Soule on keyboard, so they were now a trio, they're filling out their sound, and... 
Um, this is also when CBGB's ended up a regular spot in the rock and roll world. And when Patty saw the band television play there, her and Tom Verlaine really hit it off. She doesn't mention it in the book, but I do know that they had a, a brief relationship. Alan was always away touring with Blue Oyster Cult. And while she doesn't get into deep reasons why their relationship eventually ended, it did. Um, she asked Tom to join on guitar for a recording that they were about to do, which was going to be a cover of Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe. That was their first. They went to Electric Lady, I believe, and did a cover of that. At the end of that recording, they had 15 minutes left. So they also recorded um, Piss Factory, which was one of her um, spoken word poems, which is amazing. Um, so they did a small pressing of about 1,500 copies, and they sold them for $2 a piece. So How much? Two bucks. Oh. Yeah. When they discovered that Piss Factory was actually much more popular than the Hey Joe side, they decided to focus on their own work. Shortly after that, the band had several weeks playing, a several-week stint playing at CBGB's, and that worked out so well that after a few months, they actually headed to San Francisco and L.A. and performed at the, the Whiskey. And So they finally added a guitarist and a drummer to the group and became, you know, a, the fully-fledged Patti Smith band. So in 1975, Clive Davis offered Patti a record contract um, with Arista Records, and this time she signed. So the first right on. right finally the first time they played as a complete full band was a memorable one and I'll let Patty's words uh do the talking here she says that night as the saying goes was the jewel in our crown we played as one and the pulse and pitch of the band spiraled us into another dimension yet with all that swirling around me i could feel another presence as surely as the rabbit senses the hound he was there i suddenly understood the nature of the electric air bob dylan had entered the club yeah <laughs> Perhaps this knowledge had a strange, or not perhaps, this knowledge did have a strange effect on me. Instead of humbled, I felt power, perhaps his, but I also felt my own worth and the worth of the band. It seemed like a night of initiation where I had to become fully myself in the presence of the one I had modeled myself after. So good, right? So good. So good. So on September 2nd, 1975, the band began producing their first record, which was called Horses, and they f recorded it at, at Electric Lady Studio. It's such a phenomenal record, and I hope you check it out I and will. everyone else I will. checks it out. Robert shot the iconic album cover. and Really? Yeah. He did multiple, like, he did her uh her album covers, basically. And uh, he got that iconic shot in only 12 frames. Excellent. Yeah. Patty says, when I look at it now, I never see me. I see us. Yes. Yeah. In 1978, Robert and Patty had their own art show together. So Patty says, we chose to present a body of work that emphasized our relationship, artist and muse, a role that for both of us was interchangeable. So they worked together on a short film, and Patty also worked on drawings inspired by Robert's photographs and she was like actually on tour with her band and like doing these like drawings and they 
put it together and it was amazing and in 1978 as well patty's second album easter came out another fantastic fantastic record on that record is patty's most popular song called because the night which was co-written by bruce springsteen what the hell yeah so it was robert's dream for patty that she would one day have a hit record and here's this record came out and one day as they were walking down the street they could hear it blasting out of a storefront and she says Robert was unabashedly proud of my success what he wanted for himself he wanted for us both he exhaled a perfect stream of smoke and spoke in a tone he only used with me a bemusing scolding admiration without envy our brother sister language Patty he drawled you got famous before me so touring, of course, ended up separating Robert and Patty. And over time, while they still, you know, loved one another, they ended up, you know, having separate lives and, you know, growing apart a little bit. And in 1979, Patty actually left New York. Uh, she moved to Detroit because she met a man named Fred Smith. And she fell in love. Fred was previously in the kick-ass band MC5 and he had the same passions as Patty and when she met him she knew like this is the love of my life. So they married in 1980. In 1982 they had their first child, his son named Jackson. Um, funny enough, Jackson from 2009 to 2013 was married to Meg White from the White Stripe. <laughs> yeah. Um, Patty and Fred would work together on music after finding one another, so they also had that like muse inspiring relationship. Oh, as I well. just can't stop thinking about how like this is what our podcast is about, man. Right? Isn't we, this the most magical this thing? This is it. Ugh. This like artist muse relationship, the way it goes back and forth, the rock and roll connections, the rock and roll history. It's it's magic. I love it. It's magic. I love it. It's magic. And I'm glad that we're telling these stories. And I'm glad that we're at this point where, yeah, yeah, we hit it. Ugh, I love her so much. Do go on. Do go on, Lynx. All right. When Patty discovered she was pregnant again in 1986, um, it had been some time since her and Robert had spoken. But, of course, she wanted to share the news. She sat there and she was about to call him and then the phone rang and she had this feeling like something's up. It wasn't Robert. It was a friend informing her that Robert was in the hospital with um, AIDS-related pneumonia. Mm. Yeah. So, of course, Patty was, you know, shattered by this news. She immediately called Sam Wagstaff and he told her, yeah, Robert's very sick, but he's not as bad as I am. So she called Robert. In the what hospital. does that mean? He also... Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, she called Robert in the hospital. Robert was very optimistic. He said, I'm going to beat this thing. And he was happy to hear from her. And as soon as Robert was ready to leave the hospital, Patty and Fred and little Jackson headed to New York City to visit him. And by this time, it was Sam who was in the hospital. And he was really, you know, in the final stages, though none of them realized this. It was so early on. No one fully understood how brutal the HIV virus was about to be. Um, Sam ended up passing away on January 14th, 1987, and he was 65 years old. 
So his passing, of course, was extremely difficult for Robert, not only because he lost his partner, but also it sort of cast a shadow on his hopes of recovery. He's finally realizing, you know, maybe this isn't something that I'm going to beat. Um, Patty and Robert became extremely close again after she first learned of his diagnosis and um, she was, they were constantly on the phone with one another and she was also coming to New York a lot more and visiting him and she was also working on her next album while being pregnant and um, of course she says like the irony of her carrying life and you know him carrying death mm-hmm. like, wasn't really lost on them and um, Robert was doing well but he also had bouts of being ill and but he was well enough to go to L.A. where he once again shot the cover of Patty's album that was going to come out the next year. And it's called Dream of Life. Um, in June of 87, Patty gave birth to her daughter, Jessie. Robert took some family portraits of the Smiths and those would be the last photographs he would take of Patty. Um, I elaborated on the last two years of his life, but I ended up like bawling while writing it wow um so I deleted it because I just I didn't want to end up like sobbing while recording this <laughs> so obviously I hope everyone reads the book anyway and I'm sure you can imagine like the feeling and heartache that she expresses in there so um Robert passed away on March 9th 1989 he was only 42 years old Patty had expected to be with him at the end but it hadn't turned out that way she got a call from Robert's brother that morning and she knew before answering what it was going to be she said like before that the phone rang she experienced this strange feeling she says I was overwhelmed by a sense of excitement acceleration as if because of the closeness I experienced with Robert I was to be privy to his new adventure the miracle of death Mm. They had, I can feel like it's coming in me. Mm. Um, They had spoken the night before he passed away. And um, Patty had asked him, like, what do you want me to do? In her book, she says, I told him I would continue our work, our collaboration for as long as I lived. (sighs) He said, will you write our story? Mm. And she's asked, you know, do you want me to? And he said, you have to, like, you're the only one who can write it. So she promised I'll write our story. And uh, this is an emotional one. He told her, you know, I love you. And she said, I love you as well. And that was it. So um, Robert had a memorial at the Whitney. Um, Patty read a poem for him and or she sung a poem and after the service, Robert's mom came up to her and said, like, you're a writer, like, write me a line. And she assumed she meant, you know, write her a letter. But three days later, Robert's mom also passed away. I guess she couldn't live without Robert. Yeah. Um, so Patty ends her book saying, there are many stories I could write about Robert, about us, but this is the story I have told. It is the one he wished me to tell, and I have kept my promise. We were as Hansel and Gretel, and we ventured out into the black forest of the world. There were temptations and witches and demons we never dreamed of, and there was splendor we only partially imagined. No one could speak for these two young people, not nor sorry, tell with any truth of their days and nights together. Only Robert and I could tell it, our story as he called it. 
And having gone, he left me with the task to tell it to you. So unfortunately, Patty also experienced incredible loss five years later because her husband, Fred, passed away unexpectedly. He was only 45. And shortly after that, her brother, who she was also close with, passed away. And um, she did end up moving back to New York. And I think it was friends like uh, Allen Ginsberg and Michael Stipe and people like in the, that community who urged her, you know, you've got to get back out there. you got to keep touring. you got to keep making music. And in 1995, she did just that. I'm guessing she was made an offer she couldn't refuse because it was Bob Dylan she toured with. Mm. Um, Patty's had around 20 books published over the years, and she's made 11 albums. Um, I got to briefly meet her when she came to Toronto. You did? Yeah. Um, she was promoting her latest book, M Train, and it was just the most fantastic moment ever. And I also got to see her perform at Massey Hall, and it's been like my favorite concert I've ever seen there. So, did you get a book from her? I what did. Was she the... signed my book. Um, I talked to her. I was wearing an Oscar Wilde shirt, and she was like, Oh, Oscar Wilde. And, oh, um, wow. Yeah, and we talked about like Massey Hall. You never cease to amaze me. Well, yeah, that was like. That was a, one of those memorable moments that I treasure for sure. Um, everyone should check out Robert's work. He was an incredible, incredible artist. Um, there are two documentaries that have been made about him that are great. One is called Black, White, and Gray, and it's sort of a, more about his relationship with Sam Wagstaff and Patty. And then there's a more recent one that was made uh, like two years ago called Maplethorpe, A Look at the Pictures. And that follows, you know, his his career and it goes much more in depth than I could, you know, right now about his background and how that was reflected into his work and all that. And it's just phenomenal. And you get a really good look at his work, which is also phenomenal. Um, there's also been a film made called Maplethorpe that has yet to come out, like a biopic. They chose Matt Smith, who played Doctor Who recently, to play Maplethorpe, which is an interesting choice. But, um, yeah, Patty will be played by an actress named Marie Marianne Rendon. Um, she only has a few credits to her name, so I've never heard of her. It's actually interesting. Uh, Zasha Mamet from Girls, mm -hmm. she was originally attached to play Patty, but she had to back out, unfortunately. Mm. Um I also noticed Just Kids has been optioned because it's on IMDb, but there it's like very, very pre-production. There's no uh, people attached to or anything, but maybe we'll be seeing that in the future as well. Um, wow. And, yeah. That's a love story if I ever heard one. Yeah. Whew. I got very emotional there. So did I. Yeah. They're just magic and... They've always been like super inspiring to me and I just love their story and the time that they were, you know, together and I've been really looking forward to telling you about it. Thank you. Yeah. And you told it absolutely beautifully. Thank you. Um, so the way that you interpreted her book for the episode, you know, the way she interpreted interpreted their life and their love together for the book and the way that you did this episode, I'm just just thrilled right um you like you feel it yeah, yeah yeah i really do and i'm really grateful for this uh for this yeah. and everyone needs to and... check out just kids i mean Thank obviously you. i left out a lot and just patty's way of writing like it's so 
moving and amazing and there's so much more to their story so like uh, it's my favorite memoir check it out it's the best okay well thank you everybody for listening we hope that you enjoyed the show i know that i did and we'll see you all next week thank you have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered but wait could any of this really happen And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.